Welcome to this week's episode of Forge in the Word with Trevor Whitman. Man, this week we are going to be talking about something that I think all believers have wrestled with, have struggled with at some point, especially when they first became believers or were on that journey. And I think it's honestly a question that we all need to have a good answer for. Conversations happen with folks that are seeking and looking for the Lord, and they ask questions that are very valid for that portion of their walk, right? When they're seeking and they're trying to find and they're trying to find answers to a lot of the hard questions that come with life. And one of those questions is, how can we trust the Bible to be the authoritative text in our life, to be the source of truth for our lives, for the guidance that we are looking for in our life? How can we trust that that is actually God's word and not just written by human hand? And I think that's super valid because people know that people throughout the course of history, right, are wicked, are evil, have agendas, have things to gain from power, from different messages being preached. So I think it's honestly a valid amount of skepticism. There's a lot of messages out there. There's a lot of messages out there. And I think even, you know, when they're viewing through their worldview and and seeing that there's a lot of religions out there with their own sacred texts, right? And we're looking at Christianity going, well, why is this any different? Why is Christianity any different than any other religion out there? Why is God, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus, right? This triune God, how is this different than anything else out there? And I think it's a valid question. It's a natural question. And I think believers, sometimes we get scared of hard questions like that because we might not always have the answer. But here's something fun that I learned a long time ago that I use in my daily walk, which is admitting when I don't know. It's okay. It's okay for us to say, hey, I don't know the greatest answer to that question. Let me go look into that. Let me research that and get back to you. People are understanding. That's fair. But this question comes up over and over and over again, which is how can you trust that what is written in the Bible is actually from God and not just man. And how can I trust it to be the ultimate source of truth in my life that guides my decisions, my morality, my thoughts, my relationships? I mean, everything. To fully submit to Christ and fully submit to his word and to live according to what the Bible asks us to do, God doesn't ask us to have blind faith. This is something that I just have to say really quick before we get into this. God does not ask us to have blind faith. I've talked about it on this this podcast before. The more capacity we give God, the more he'll give into us, right? The more that he'll give to us, the more capacity of investigation and research, the more we dive in, the more we'll find. Guys, I wasn't saved by some you know, beam of light coming down on me when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I would lay in bed. I've talked about this before. I lay in bed and I would ask the really tough questions. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Why am I alive? Where do I go when I die? Where was I before I was alive? Right? I asked a lot of those tough questions and I wanted logical, reasoned answers. And I'll tell you what, my journey as a child came to a pinnacle in my faith when I was finally a teenager And I read a couple books that were monumental to my life, right? One is Mere Christianity 
by C.S. Lewis. And the other was A Case for Christ. And both of those books build logically and with reason of how we can trust that Jesus was the Savior of the world and that he was actually God. And they build it in a very logical, reasoned way. They build their arguments on things that make sense, that build up. God does not ask us to just blindly believe and not investigate. He wants us to investigate. You know why? Because when we investigate, we get to know him better. It's a good thing. It's a good thing when we dive in, when we try to go answer those hard questions because it leads to deeper and deeper understanding of God and who he is and also deepens our relationship with him. And so what happens is, is we ask these tough questions and sometimes we shy away from them. We're scared of trying to answer those questions to other people because it's kind of a big question to unpack. And so today, my goal is not to give you every reason under the sun or even go into a ton of detail. I want to give you four different ways that I believe logically add up to our understanding of the Bible and why we can trust it to be our authoritative text, our source of truth for how we live our life and trust that it's from God. Because if we start out by going to scripture, which isn't a bad thing, by the way, there's plenty of places in scripture that give us confidence that the word of God in the Bible is directly from him and not man. Right? We read 2 Timothy 3.16 and we read all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Right? We see that all scripture is inspired by God and we see that there's multiple times throughout scripture where the Holy Spirit speaks in and through people. We even hear Jesus talk about it in Mark 13.11 where he outlines how it's possible for the Holy Spirit to speak on behalf of us if we're led by the Spirit. This letter to the Thessalonians was written by Paul, but as they received it, they knew it wasn't from men, but it was from the Lord himself. They talk about that in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians. We see that the Old Testament is filled with God speaking directly to the people of that time and it being recorded in each book in its own way, right? We see him talking to people like Moses and Joshua, Right? We see him talking in and through people. Right, David, it says in 2 Samuel 23, 1-2, that the word of the Lord was spoken from the Spirit of the Lord and not by him, even though it was from his own mouth. Right, We see in Hebrews 3, 7 that the author of Hebrews is pointing out that the Lord spoke in and through Isaiah, the prophet. And just a quick little side note about what the word prophet means. Sometimes we think about prophecy and we only think, oh, it's a guy that's talking about the end times. <laughs> okay, there's so much more to prophets than just, you know, talking about what's coming in the future. The most simple and basic definition of the word prophet as defined through scripture is simply one that just speaks on behalf of God. Another word for that is inspiration through the Holy Spirit. Right? So even how the prophets spoke boldly to their communities at that time, that mostly led to their death because they weren't speaking messages that the people liked, those people were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke on behalf of God, and spoke what God had imprinted on their hearts for them to say. But there's a problem with us going to Scripture when we're trying to describe to someone 
why scripture is God's word, right? That's circular logic. Hey, I'm going to use the thing that you're questioning the authority of, and I'm going to use that to talk about how it has authority, right? That doesn't make sense. And honestly, when you're trying to describe the Bible in that way and someone's really not sold on it, you're not going to get very far because you're like, oh, well, the, you know, in second, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scriptures God breathed. And they're like, cool, but you're using the source to talk about the authority of the source, right? It's, tr- it's like using a word when you're trying to define a word. You're, you use the same one in the definition as the word itself, you just can't do that. Circular logic. And so there has to be more. And again, God is not afraid of you diving in. He's not afraid. And so today's episode, we're going to dive into that. This week's episode gets me so psyched because when people start unlocking these things, when all of a sudden this is no longer a mental block, when all of a sudden they can trust the Bible to be exactly what it says it is, That helps us to view God in a different way. That helps us to view his word in a different way. And honestly, when we start viewing it that way and we see that it's God's direct communication to us and we can trust that it's from him, that only leads to massive amounts of growth in our walks with him. And so I'm going to break it down into four quick categories about how we can trust the Bible to be an authoritative text in our life. And the first of which is that it is a historically accurate document. Historians that aren't believers now use the Bible as a historical document. The events that happen in the Bible are backed up historically, right? So some examples are when they talk about Assyria and Babylonia and Persia being world empires, right? We see the Roman Empire with domination of the known world at the time that Jesus was alive and the early church began. All of those things happened. And and so when I look at history and I'm reading through the Bible, I can match those two up. I can hold one in one hand and one in the other and say, okay, historically, these line up. These line up, right? When they talk about different groups of people come into power when we see you know different groups of people rising and falling we see all types of history backed up by what scripture says okay non-christian historians acknowledge and write about the same events that happen in the old testament and the new testament even though there's no benefit to them right they're they're not trying to prove a worldview historians jobs are simply to outline how history went, right? There's even a guy named Josephus that's a really famous non-Christian historian that backs up details that are in the Bible and says, hey, these things happen. He's not even a Christian, right? And he's outlining things that Jesus and his disciples did, okay? So when we're looking at it as a historical document, there are a ton of non-believers that are not Christians at all that accept the Bible as a historical document. So that's kind of step one. And I want to build this very carefully. I'm going to build this up in such a way that you're going to be confident in what the Bible is in a couple different facets, but ultimately God's word. And so I'm going to build this up in such a way. So follow with me here. So first of all, we can acknowledge that what is in the Bible is historically accurate. 
The second thing that we look at when we're trying to prove that the Bible is our authoritative text and it's God's word and it's accurate is archaeology. You see, back in 1946, they discovered these really cool caves in Qumran where they found 972 texts that were originally written and have been scientifically dated to 200 to 100 BC. And our current copies of the Old Testament from the 10th century match up perfectly to these original manuscripts. And these are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, important point to point out here is that this is the Old Testament only. Okay, these Dead Sea Scrolls and the fragments that they found in these caves in Qumran, and they match up perfectly to the original manuscripts that we have. Which means that there has been zero changes to the Old Testament text since it was written. It hasn't been changed. It has not been changed. We also see oral tradition within the Jewish community of the Old Testament that it was passed down in multiple, multiple, multiple generations where all those historically accurate statements and descriptions of events that happen in the Old Testament are backed up by generations of oral tradition, written tradition. They had schools that taught these events, right? So the Old Testament has been proven to be the exact same Old Testament that has been in existence since it was written. We can believe and trust that the Old Testament is exactly what it was when it was originally written. We also have seen that it's been translated into a ton of different languages, but originally we saw that the Hebrew text, which is the Masoretic text, matches up perfectly with the Greek text of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. Okay, so the Masoretic text comes from the Hebrew word Masorah, which refers to the transmission of a tradition and is the oldest existing manuscripts dated in the ninth century. And it is the authoritative text of the Jewish Bible in Hebrew. Okay, and the Septuagint, like I said, is the Greek version. It's also known as the LXX. And that is the Old Testament that was translated into Koine Greek. And the percentage of accuracy between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint is 99.9% with no changes in doctrine or teaching or anything like that. The 0.1% is some spelling changes and some punctuation edits. That's it. So what we see is the original text that we've seen from the very beginning of when the Old Testament was written is the exact same both in Greek and in Hebrew and is the exact same as what we have now when you do a literal translation of the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament. So what we look at here is historically, through what we have found throughout history, is that the Bible is backed up by what has happened in history in non-Christian environments, has been proven to be so. And now we look at archaeology, where we have found Old Testament scrolls and the Dead Sea Scrolls that back up that the Old Testament that we have is accurate to what it has always been. And then we have also found that there were 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts dating from 150 AD to the Middle Ages that had 99.7% accuracy with no doctrinal or teaching changes. Again, those 
0.3 changes were spelling changes, punctuation edits, and small grammar changes to make it make more sense in that language translation. So what we see is we can trust that what we have sitting in front of us in the Bible is exactly what was written the first time. And you go, well, how do you really know? Well, we haven't always had copy machines and scanners and printers. <laughs> so you ask, well, how did we get those 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts? Or how did we get the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, there were people, and I, I can't believe this calling. I, uh, <laughs> I would not want this to be my calling in life. But there were scribes and monks that their entire existence, they felt called to copy these documents over and over and over and over again. And so when they were doing this, right, so all of those copies that I was just referring to, these scribes and monks, they had rules to maintain the accuracy of their copies. If they made one mistake, they had to start the chapter over. If they made two mistakes, they had to start the book over because they assumed that they had made other mistakes that they did not catch. So these people, that all they do, night and day, is copy the word of God. And how they copied it was that scrupulous, was that intentionally detailed. So we can be affirmed that in all of the copying of the text, that it wasn't like a glorified telephone game, right? I don't know if you remember playing the telephone game when you were a kid, but you start out with one message on one side, and then when you get to the very end, it's like completely different. And sometimes it happened by, you know, it, it happened naturally the way it was supposed to. Sometimes a kid would mess it up in the middle just to try to be funny, right? But you'd play this telephone game <laughs> and the message was not even close to the beginning at the end. That's not what's happening here, right? How we get our scriptures from the original manuscripts has been copied and studied and copied and studied and copied and studied for generations, Right, And so when we are looking at the archaeology of why the Bible can be trusted to be what it says it is, we can be affirmed that the Old Testament has been the same the whole time. And that the Old, the Old Testament that we study now is the same as when it was written. And with the New Testament, we can trust that all the letters that were written by Paul and the Gospels written by the disciples, and John with the book of Revelation, right? All of these books have not changed since they were written. That's very important. That's very important. So we're working with primary documents, right? That's what it's called. Primary source is when it's a firsthand source. So when we read our Bible, everything that we read is a primary source. Now, if you go into a court of law, and you're sitting up and you're a part of the uh, witness crew and you get asked questions about things that you see, right? It's called an eyewitness account. If that happens, your testimony is considered a primary source, a firsthand source. And as long as your character cannot be proven to be sketchy, your testimony is taken as authoritative truth. Because it is a primary source. It is a first-hand knowledge proof. It's not, he said, she said. It's not, well, hey, I heard this one thing from this one other person and then I say it. No, everything that was written in the Bible 
is a primary source. Firsthand. Everyone that wrote anything, it was firsthand experience. Okay? So we look at it through history, check. We look at it through archaeology, check. Now this next one is kind of fun because it, it might make you a little uncomfortable. We can trust that the Bible is exactly what it was when it was written, and we can trust that it is the original manuscripts of exactly what was written because of science. Now, real quick, I got I to gotta dispel some stuff. There are some believers out there that believe that if we believe in science to any degree, that it's the opposite of belief in the Lord. And that's crazy, right? There are some theories that are out there that definitely are attempting to disprove God and whatever, okay? But the majority of science is actually a compliment, right? Not a compliment with an I, but with an E, right? It complements it. It complements creation where our study of science and how things work and how things are broken down and, and how things work in our universe and how things work at the atomic level, right? When we look at it through a lens of appreciation of who God is, science is epic. Science is awesome because science is telling you exactly how God created the world. And he explains exactly why he did it the way he did by the study of scripture. You see how it all works, right? You see how ecosystems work. You see how our bodies work. You see how the universe works. You see how gravity works. So you start understanding things like, hey, if we were any closer to the sun, we would fry. And if we were any closer or further away from the sun, we would freeze, right? Just the detail that God put into creation is just mind-blowing. And we only discover those things by our study of science, and so, yes, science does have some theories out there, but the majority of science points to God. Actually, all science does, but I'm saying those theories that try to disprove him are, are outliers, right? And they're false. <laughs> so we'll just call bygones what they are, right? It's false. And so what's cool is we actually know that the scriptures were written exactly when they were supposed to be written and that exactly what was written is the exact same as it was back then by science because they can carbon date archaeological findings and prove that the date and the time period that all of scripture was written, that it can affirm the exact same timeline that we do. Guys, Christians and scientists are not at disagreement about when the Bible was written. Isn't that cool? We're all in agreement. You don't even have to be a believer, right? Historians that are non-Christians acknowledge when the Bible was written, what time period it was written, by whom it was written, in what era it was written. We can all agree on that. Isn't that, I think that's epic. And there's a reason why I think that's epic. Because all three of these points lead to the fourth point which is how we can take this step from the Bible being just a historical document to the active, living, breathing Word of God. Because we have to answer this question, 
of why does it matter that Christians and science agree on when the Bible was written, who authored them and overall time frame that the Old and the New Testaments were written. Why does it matter, Trevor? Why does it matter that we all agree on when it was written? And that's because of the fourth reason that we can trust that the Bible can be authoritative text in our life. And that is through fulfilled prophecy. So let me break it down for you like this. I'm going to say it really cleanly once so that way we can build off of this, okay? So through history, archaeology, and science, we can agree with non-believers, we can build on that foundation that the Bible was written exactly when we say that it was written, by whom it was written, in the eras that it was written, okay? That is the foundation. That's the groundwork. That's not even argue, like we can't even argue that. That's not even arguable points. That's just widely accepted, regardless if you're a believer or not. That's widely accepted information. But here's where it gets super cool, okay? So I'm going to blast through these because there's a lot. But there are so many epic things in Scripture because in John 19, 28 through 30, right, it says that all Scripture would be fulfilled, by Jesus. Okay? So every book in the Old Testament has been dated using non-Christian methods to verify the dates that they were written. Every date that is used has been verified through primary documents that have been proven to be historically accurate. Jesus was born sometime between 0 and 5 BC. Okay, now this point's debated, but we'll just, for the sake of this podcast, we'll just go with the ballpark of 0 to 5 BC and that Jesus died in April of 33 AD. Okay, so this is the general background information of this. Okay, so let's first look at the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was written in 725 BC. Okay, for those of you doing math, that's around 720 years before Jesus was born. Okay, in Isaiah 50, Verse 6, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Matthew 27, 26 through 30. But he had Jesus flogged. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. You're going to start seeing this theme. I'm going to read the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, and I'm going to read what happened to him out of the Gospels. Okay, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John 19, 34 says, Instead of one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Matthew 26, 62 through 63. What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained Silent. Isaiah 53, 9. He was assigned a grave with the rich in his death. Matthew 27, 57 through 60. A rich man from Arithmia named Joseph took Jesus' body and placed it on his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. So really quick on that one, right? It says that there was a guy that was rich that bought a grave to bury Christ. And then Matthew 27, Joseph from Arithmia says, hey, I bought a new tomb. Let's bury Jesus there. He's a rich dude. 
Okay, Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We obviously see in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, so I just blasted through a couple of different examples, and there's so many of these that fulfill what was said in John 19, which was that Jesus came to fulfill the word. Okay, so let me break it down for you further because I sense that you're not quite blown away by this. You're like, Trevor, okay. So you're reading from Isaiah, which says that when Jesus comes, he's going to do these things, and then Jesus did them. Okay, why is that epic? These events happened around 33 A.D., Okay, Matthew was written in, you know, somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. John was written in 80 to 90 AD, right in that ballpark. Okay, so that's the time frame that we're working with. The book of Isaiah, just to remind you, was written in 725 BC. So 720 years before Jesus was born, these words were spoken. Okay, so let me give you some perspective. That would be the equivalent of someone giving us a prophecy back in the 1200s about what's happening today. Now, (laughs) if someone back in the 1200s could say what's happening in 2020 right now, that would be the craziest, like (laughs) with the amount of things that have happened to us this year, you know, on a global scale, uh, that would be pretty, uh, that'd be pretty crazy. Okay. But in the 1200s, just to give you some perspective, America hadn't even been discovered yet. The Holy Crusades were still happening. Mongolia was still a giant world power ruled by Genghis Khan. Okay, life in the 1200s was no electricity, right? They were about 600 years off from that, right? That wasn't invented till 1831 when that was when electricity was used in technology. There were no cars. Again, another 600 years, right? That was developed in 1886, which is when the first gasoline power car was invented. There were no airplanes, right? Almost 700 years difference there. The first successful plane was in 1903, right? There were no phones, obviously. That's another 700 years. The first handheld mobile phone was invented in 1973. An equivalent prophecy illustration would be if someone back in the 1200s said that Trevor Whitman in the year 2020 is going to get on an airplane and is going to fly to Arizona take a rental car to his hotel, check into his hotel with a smartphone, and when he gets into his room, turn on the lights. That's what it would be. If someone said that back in the 1200s about something that I did back in the early spring of this year, that would be the equivalent. Even though they have no concept of electricity, of cars, of airplanes, of phones, obviously of who I am, anything like that. It'd be the equivalent of someone said in the 1200s all of those details about something happening in 2020. That's crazy, right? That doesn't happen. You can't do it. If you tried to call something that was going to happen in the next 725 years, good luck. It's just not possible without the Lord. But I can sense he still might not believe me, so let's keep going, okay? Let's go to the book of Zechariah. That's a little closer to Jesus' time, 520 BC. 
Okay, so that's about 515 years before Jesus was born. Okay, Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for me as one mourns for a lost child. John 19.34 says, Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side. Zechariah 11.13 says, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Ho, if that doesn't blow your mind, hell. Matthew 26, 15, Judas asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted him out, 30 silver coins, little details that you could not call 500 years in advance, right? Matthew 27, five through eight. So Judas threw the money into the temple <laughs> and left. The chief priest picked up the coin, so they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field. And that is why it's called the field of blood to this day. Guys, in Zechariah, 500 plus years before Jesus was even born, he talked about how Jesus was going to be betrayed for the exact same amount of money that he was betrayed for and that that money was going to buy a potter's field and that it would be called the field of blood. It's exactly what it's called even today. 2020, still called that. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. I've already proven to you that the Bible is a historical document that through archaeology and through science, we can confirm the dates that it was written. We can confirm that Zechariah was written 500 years before Jesus was born. We can confirm it. And Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies throughout his life that we see throughout Scripture. Let's keep going. Zechariah 13, 7 says, Strike the shepherd and the, and the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14, 46, and 50, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Okay, again, these events happened in 33 AD. They were written about in 80 to 90 AD in John, 50 to 60 AD in Matthew, and 50 to 60 AD in Mark. Right in that realm. So again, 500 years of difference. And Jesus is fulfilling them to the smallest detail. Okay, so maybe that's not long enough for you. Maybe you're like, you know what, Trevor? 500 years doesn't blow my mind too much. 700 years, that's getting there. But but really, come on, man. 700 years, give me something more. Fine, let's do it. Book of Psalms. <laughs> the book of Psalms was written between 1013 through 970 BC. That is almost a thousand years before Jesus was born. A thousand years, right? We see in Psalms all over the place, but I'll just pick out a few that I think are cool. All over the place, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, saying, this is what's going to happen to him when he's alive. And sure enough, it comes to fruition. Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar, right? Matthew 27, 46 and 50, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew 27, 43 through 44. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Right? Being mocked the exact way. Again, this is actually a really good point to bring up right here really fast. It'd be one thing if Jesus only fulfilled the things that were said that he would do, okay? 
Because one could argue, one could sit here and go, okay, Trevor, well, this is all really convenient. Maybe Jesus knew the scriptures so well that he just intentionally lived them out and spoke what was supposed to be spoken because he knew that he would fulfill it. And I would say to that skeptic, great question, right? Always press in further. But how many of these prophecies did I read that had nothing to do with things that Jesus was in control of? He could not control Judas betraying him. He couldn't control Judas selling him out for the amount of money that he did or what the priest did with the money that was given back to them. He didn't control any of that. He didn't control the guy that stabbed him with a spear in the side, right? He didn't, he didn't control how they killed him. He didn't control what people said when they mocked him. And I just have read a ton of examples of things that other people did to fulfill prophecies that were spoken 500, 700, 1,000 years before Jesus was even born. Okay, let's keep going. Two more. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. John 20, 25 through 27. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Right? That was Thomas saying that. And then lastly, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Matthew 27, 35 says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And lastly, again, these events happened in 33 AD and they were written about 50 to 60 AD and 80 to 90 AD by Matthew and John. So here's what's crazy. I just read to you about 20 prophecies that were fulfilled through Jesus's life, either by him or by others. Fulfilled. 500, 700, a thousand years were spoken about Jesus before he was born. A thousand years before he was born, these things were said and he fulfilled them. Guys, there are hundreds of these. Go read your Old Testament. It's wild. <laughs> Buckle up. You go read the Old Testament with that lens on looking for those things that Jesus fulfilled in his life. You're going to find hundreds of examples. So why does this matter? How does this prove what we're trying to prove here. Well, when we look at the evidence that we find from history, from archaeology, from science, and fulfilled prophecy, we can trust that the Bible is a primary authoritative source and can be trusted fully as the direct word of God to us. Guys, I built it this way on purpose. I built it so that we could find common ground with people that are searching or doubting that this word of God, that the Bible came from God himself. And I had to break it down in such a way where we can look at it through the lens that is non-religious, right? In quotation marks. I want to break it down in a way that we can all find common ground. We can find common ground with non-believers through history. We can find common ground with them through archaeology. We can find common ground through science and how they date things in their own way, right? Carbon dating is a very scientific method, right? That is not something that Christians invented, right? Carbon dating is used, and honestly, there's some flaws to it for sure, but they use it to prove things within their own scientific method. So I'm going to say, hey, if they use that method, then sure, let's use it to continue to prove what we're trying to prove. And through the scientific method, we find that the Bible is dated to the exact dates that Christians say that they are. So we're all in agreement on those three. We're in agreement 
But here's the kicker. Here's where it blows my mind is if we can all agree that the book of Psalms was written a thousand years before Jesus. If we can all agree that Zechariah was written 500 years before Jesus. If we can all agree that Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus. We can all agree on that. Then when you actually go read those passages and that those prophets called word for word, detail for detail, exactly what would happen to the Messiah when he came. It is absolutely proved that this is God's word. There's no other way, guys. You can't say something 700 years ago about what's going to happen now. You just can't. You just can't. There's no other way, there's no other explanation for fulfilled prophecy in that nature without God being involved. And so what we did today was prove that God's word is historically accurate, was fine through archaeology, it is backed up through science, and that the fulfilled prophecy within scripture proves that it is an authoritative text that we can trust, and that it is actually God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, and is meant to be our ultimate guide and source of truth. Guys, there are a lot of believers out there who believe in God and follow his word, but don't have confidence in answering the question, why do you trust the Bible to be the authoritative source of truth in your life? And my hope is, is that through this podcast, it has answered some of your questions and given you some confidence that the Bible you read is God's direct special revelation to mankind to reveal his glory. And if there are friends in your life that you think would benefit from hearing this podcast, my hope would be that you would have the boldness to share it with them and continue growing by listening to next week's episode on Forging the Word with Trevor Whitman. (laughs) 